Welcome, everybody, to another episode of JewishDrinking.com, the show. Today, I'm very excited because we have Professor Marnie Davis, Associate Professor at Georgia State University, and her claim to fame, the reason why she's on the show today is because she wrote a book about Jews and Prohibition. You can buy it. It's called Jews and Booze. And, and the subtitle is Becoming American in the Age of Prohibition. Everybody wants to buy it. It's also going to be, the link to it is going to be in the show notes here. Great. So you can easily go out and buy Professor Davis's book. Thanks. So let me just start off. What was, Professor Davis, what was most surprising in your research about Jews and prohibition and navigating all that? Well, there were lots of surprises as I went. Um, the first one was really the mere presence of Jews in the alcohol industry in the United States. Uh, yeah. I went into uh, wanting to do some research on Jewish socioeconomic behavior and activity. So what kinds of work did Jews do and how did that work help them to become American and make their way, and also not just to become American, but to maintain a sense of Jewish identity, do those two things simultaneously. Uh -huh. and of course, you know, there's been a lot written about uh, the rag trade and the shmata trade and the clothing industry, uh, a lot written about the movie industry, uh, but uh, the alcohol really came as a total surprise. Uh, I found it through one tiny little uh, a picture with a caption that mentioned that uh, Jews were saloon keepers in Atlanta. And I thought, oh. really? That's weird. Uh, and it, it sent me down. Well, I guess it's not a rabbit hole when it becomes a book. <laughs> but it did. It sent me into the archives and doing years of research and I discovered that Jews were in fact very present and in many places quite visible in the alcohol trade in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So that all by itself uh, surprised me. Um, and I guess the uh, one of the other, I'm sorry? What were you researching when you stumbled upon that photo caption? I was interested in, because I'd come to Atlanta, I was doing my graduate work at Emory University. And I thought that uh, this would be a really good place to look into um, the relationships between Jews and African Americans in the urban South. Uh, I had come from New York and work had been done in northern cities, but I hadn't really seen much in southern cities. I didn't know that there was, in fact, a huge literature because I was just getting started in my work. Uh, but I wanted to look into um, how blacks and Jews uh, related to one another uh, in Atlanta. And the um, the picture came from uh, a book that was written in 1908 by a muckraking journalist named Ray Stannard Baker. Uh, and Baker had come to Atlanta right after a what they called a race riot, which was essentially uh, white people in Atlanta sort of tearing through black neighborhoods and killing African Americans and destroying their property. And it was a it was essentially a massacre uh, in 1906. So. He, uh, Standard, Ray Standard Baker came to Atlanta sort of just as a journalist, what's going on here? Why are race relations in America so terrible? And what can Atlanta tell us? And it turned out that the riot had really begun uh, in a neighborhood called the Decatur Street Saloon District. Uh, and this was sort of a red light district. I mean, it was residential and shopping, generally speaking, but it was also where there were a lot of saloons and brothels and, uh, and you know, billiard rooms and dance halls and things like that. And it also turned out that of the 
probably about 50 saloons um, along a five block stretch on Decatur Street. Half of them were uh, run by very recent Eastern European uh, Jewish immigrants in Atlanta. It had it was an incredibly dense, robust uh, socioeconomic niche. Uh, and so when Baker was explaining what had happened during the riot, he showed two pictures of these two saloons, um, one owned by Abram Abelsky, the other by Michael Cohen, and the caption said, many of the saloons that catered to Negroes, because it was especially a concern for white Atlantans that black people were drinking because they feared um, uh, the, the, what they, they had sort of created a... a a, a hysterical idea of the problems of black alcohol consumption. And the, the, the caption said that many of the saloons that catered to Negroes were run by foreigners, usually Jews. And so what I discovered is that this is a whole story that develops in the early 20th century um, that not only becomes sort of the justification for a, um, uh, a reinforcing of white supremacy in the South, through uh, making it illegal for black people to vote um, and shutting down uh, African-American sites of leisure and entertainment, um, but also sort of imagining uh, Jewish immigrants as sort of uh, the people who catered to African-American tendencies towards vice. Mm. So it's this kind of, you know, a dual um, uh, prejudice that is being uh, offered about uh, a prejudice against African-Americans, but also a prejudice against uh, Jews and especially recent Jewish immigrants as people who are unable to um, become sufficiently white in the South, which is a so powerful, yeah. So that's early 20th century yes. socio like social context for what happens pre-prohibition, correct? Correct. correct. Okay. And I mean, there's an earlier story to it too, because Jews were involved in the alcohol industry before the Civil War even, and certainly in the 1870s, 1880s, but this was before the Prohibition movement had really um, sort of taken hold in the way that it would. Uh, generally speaking, in the 1870s, 1880s, there was certainly a very powerful Prohibition movement, but that movement wasn't uh, as concerned about production as it was about consumption. So the problem for those early prohibitionists and temperance workers, the problem was people who drank too much. And so the question is how to keep them from drinking and how to convince them to, you know, abandon the bottle and swear a, a temperance vow. But Jews were not considered problem drinkers. Uh -huh. So they kind of got let off the hook in that respect. But by the early 20th century, the temperance movement had shifted in its uh, area of concern. They're still concerned, of course, about problem drinkers, but now they have become more interested and concerned about alcohol production and distribution. It's become an economic problem, um, a problem of capitalism rather than a problem of individual um, moral failing. And so the, then the question is, well, then who's selling the alcohol? And the answer becomes, um, you know, Germans in general, uh, at, because Germans have established uh, the most of the breweries in the United States by the early 20th century with mm -hmm. tremendous success. Uh, and that would actually become a huge uh, point of anti-German prejudice around World War I. Uh, 
certainly uh, Italians uh, who are involved in wine production, uh, but also in selling wine throughout the United States, and Jews who are considered a, uh, you know, a, a particular type of problem in uh, the mind of the pro prohibition activist. Okay, so then when we get to prohibition, how much do Jews, or how much do they comply, and how much do they, um, basically, how much are they the breachers when it comes to prohibition? Oh gosh, uh, well, it depends on which Jews you're talking about. Because sure. what, what we see, this is another thing that really surprised me was the level of disagreement within Jewish, among Jewish communities. That surprises uh, you? Yeah, no, but I mean, <laughs> when it comes to prohibition specifically, uh, okay. that, I mean, yeah, I, yes, I take the point well taken, but, yes. uh, but the degree to which different, uh, um, sort of uh, factions of American Jewry either said, well, we need to comply as, you know, completely as we can, and we will even participate in the writing of the law, the Volstead Act, the National Prohibition Law, uh, because one of the things that uh, Jews were working for, trying, some Jews were trying to make sure that sacramental wine would be available to Jews so that they could you know, uh, worship um, according to the First Amendment, because now there's this issue of there's this new, you know, um, 18th Amendment. Is it going to be in conflict with the First Amendment, freedom of religion? And so yeah. they there is a, a special dispensation made in the National Prohibition Act, in the Volstead Act, that says that sacramental wine can be available uh, to uh, groups who use it, but only within fairly restricted terms. It has to go through sort of a central, um, through a clergy person or a central uh, religious organization, and that's how people can get access to it. Uh, but there's a problem here, right? Because um, like for Catholics, wine is consumed in the church. So the wine is, you know, purchased through the diocese, it's distributed to the churches, it's consumed in church, the end. Uh, but for Jews, it's consumed at the dinner table <laughs> um, every week uh, and during Passover in large quantities. Uh, so the wine then has to go through a specific, through, through particular rabbis who can access it through sacramental wine stores. Uh, and then the, that rabbi will distribute it to members of the congregation. Were there only certain rabbis permitted? Like what was the... Were certain accepted and certain not to be able to sell them? Well, um, you had to get a permit. Okay. But any rabbi was able to get a permit. Uh, okay. But the problem is uh, that, and you know, for uh, for Jews who are of, of recent uh, arrival in the United States, Orthodox Jews of recent arrival, there is potentially a problem in that there isn't necessarily any like a rabbinic. Um, uh, school, <laughs> like there is for um, for Catholic priests who are trained in seminaries, uh, but Jews of very recent arrival might not have been trained in a you know in the in a in a rabbinic school. They might have just been trained in their communities, and they would arrive without any like very official credentialing. Uh, but they're still a rabbi, and they're still potentially serving a congregation. And so these uh, um, uh, permits are sort of. Uh, given out to anybody who asks for it. Uh, but that creates all kinds of confusion because it means that anybody can ask for one. Uh, and it comes to the point where during the rabbinic wine scandals of the early prohibition period, uh, it, it is realized that people who aren't even, not even not rabbis, but not Jewish, 
are um, receiving uh, the uh, permits for sacramental wine and then distributing it amongst their congregants who also are not Jewish. So the early, you said the early prohibition era, were, were, was that not as much of an issue towards the latter part? They, it, yes, towards the latter part, the, the, um, the leak had been plugged, I guess you could say. Uh, so the um, bootlegging still was very much a problem from the very beginning, but this was, a, it was kind of a sort of a different uh, issue, a different stream, if you will, than the um, the sacramental wine uh, scandals of the very early, of the 19, of 1920, 21, 22 or so. Uh -huh. So there's... When, when, you say, when you say bootlegging, is that just bringing in booze from Canada or elsewhere outside of the country, or is it also production internally within the country and then selling it illegally? Yes. It's both? All of it. All of it. All okay. um, illegal production and distribution would be referred to as as bootlegging and that wow. is that included from you know uh, uh, Canada through Detroit uh, that included um, uh, uh, rum running from the Caribbean uh, included you know uh, uh, alcohol from distilled alcohol from uh, Scotland and <laughs> uh, wow. uh, through Mexico uh, there it was kind of coming in from you know all boundaries and also being produced uh, domestically, sometimes in huge quantities, uh, sometimes right under the noses of, of, uh, of, of prohibition officials, uh, and sometimes in tiny little quantities. Uh, the, the problem, and it's also important to point out that it was not illegal to make uh, alcohol for your own consumption. The problem only becomes when it's a commodity. Uh -huh. so people are making, you know, they're making wine, sort of at their hearth, and the moment they try to sell it, then they're, uh, then they're breaking the law. And so people are doing this in these really tiny quantities. I, I also found out, uh, at, when I finished the book, um, I guess my mom at that point felt comfortable telling me, you know, uh, your grandfather, her father, who was a pharmacist on Long Island, uh, he made uh, bathtub gin. Uh, during the prohibition period, and sold it out of his pharmacy. He's like, "Why didn't you tell me this? This could have this could have made it into my scholarship." But uh, so it's happening in huge quantities, small quantities, domestically, internationally, and Jews and were part of it, but only a small part. How do you mean? I mean, the law was broken flagrantly everywhere by all different kinds of people. It's I think it's really important to not give the impression that Jews were like a dominant force in breaking this law. They, it was just, it was as American as could be to violate prohibition law. And so Jews did it just like every other kind of American did it, including, including, you know, Baptists who were, uh, you know, enthusiastic about the law for other people, but for themselves, perhaps uh, felt entirely comfortable having a drink on occasion. What can I do? You know which types of alcohol were more common by bootlegging or home production? Like we people were allowed to make wine at their houses, right? But not beer. Um, well, beer is just harder to. I guess you. I mean, people do do uh, like home beer uh, uh, production. Uh, wine was just a lot more common. Okay. As far as I know, I mean, one of the problems with doing this kind of research is that so much of it happened illegally as part of an underground economy that actually figuring out the there's no statistical uh, record 
of who sold what to whom, except for the people who got caught. So, uh, uh, as far as uh, I understand from my research, what really, I mean, what got produced at the stuff that got more was more likely to get produced at home and sold is going to be things like wine um, and uh, fruit, yeah, fruit-based fermented liquors, just or alcohol, because um, it's easier to make. Uh, but bringing from elsewhere and shipping in large quantities, that's going to be distilled liquors. Uh -huh. And yeah. most of the distilled stuff brought in was gin, vodka. What was common? I, my impression is that, you know, I don't actually, I couldn't say for sure whether there was one particular kind of um, distilled alcohol that was more popular than another. Uh, my sense is that uh, when it's illegal, whatever you can get your hands on is great. Um, and people were willing to drink some really terrible, if not even entirely toxic stuff um, during prohibition when it was made illegal. I mean, the parallels between the um that law and drug prohibition uh today it, you know it's interesting to consider the 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 um the effects of uh it's it, not just its illegality but it's totally unregulated nature because of it it's operating underground uh that has a you know that, that it has that has effects on the consumers uh that can be, be really deleterious fatal yeah. even right. and that's for alcohol too what ended up happening? How do they clamp down on the latter half? I'm going to go backwards to the sure. the selling through the rabbis. How did how did the wine stuff? How they lock it down and make sure that it was correctly? I don't know, supervised. Right. Well, they uh, reduced the number of uh, permits given to rabbis so that it got harder for the actual rab rabbinic authority person, the individual, to uh, access wine for the congregations. There was more uh, investigation of rabbis. Uh, they had to be able to prove that they were um, officiants of, a of an established congregation and not just a made-up congregation. Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, so there's, that's one. Another was, uh, the law, I mean, the law changed numerous times over the course of the Prohibition era. Um, oh. Other change to the law was that the number of gallons a permissible per Jew <laughs> per year, or per, I think it's, yeah, it's per year, uh, that got smaller. It had started at 10 gallons a year, and I think it went down to five or four. Uh, just so that just reduced the, the amount of alcohol that was being made uh, available legally. And was, finally, but I'm sorry. Who was producing it? Who was producing all that? Right. Uh, that, I mean, a lot of, many of the producers were the same people who had been producing kosher wine before prohibition, but now they had to, they couldn't sell directly to like retail outlets. They had to sell through federally approved um, sacramental wine stores. And wow. that's how the rabbis, the rabbis would have to go to the sacramental wine store. So the, um, it's basically like a package store <laughs> the, that the, uh, the federal government became the middleman between the producer of the kosher wine and the, I guess, the consumer who, you know, the first consumer being the rabbi and then the second consumer being the individuals who are buying it. But I also, uh, I had an interview, I interviewed, um, uh, what's the name of the 
kosher wine company in New York, the, their advertising slogan was wine so thick you can cut it with a knife. Not Manischewitz. No, it's not Manischewitz. This, this pre, Manischewitz did not start making and selling kosher wine until after the repeal of Prohibition. Okay. Uh, as a company. Um, so this is a company that's uh, previous to, and I'm very sad that I can't remember the name of it. I'll remember it as soon as this end, as soon as we stop talking. Um, <laughs> but this is a family that had been making kosher wine on the Lower East Side, like on Rivington Street, uh, since the 1880s. Uh, huh. So a very old company. And so when Prohibition went into effect, that company then started making wine for uh, for the sacramental uh, you know, for for the for the federal government basically to sell them at sacramental wine shops. But the this person I interviewed was the grandson of the founder of this uh, um, of of this uh, vintner, and he said, "Yeah, but we were selling it out the back too," meaning <laughs> that sure they were going through established and legal channels, but if someone really just wanted to go get a bottle of wine, they were also selling it, you know. Uh, yeah, on the sly, on the side. And, and this is, I think it's fair to say, no different from what Catholic churches were doing and Episcopal churches mm -hmm. were doing. But this is, again, this is a, this is a substance that had a huge uh, consumer market and lots of demand. And uh, the prohibition authorities were uh, inefficient <laughs> and uh, unable to uh, stanch the flow, unable to convince Americans that it was worth uh, um, uh, abstaining uh, as much as they wanted Americans to, and uh, they just couldn't enforce it. And that's really the reason for the failure of prohibition, was insufficient enforcement. That was it? That was the linchpin? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, wow. I mean, it's a combination of, of insufficient enforcement uh, or an, an enforcement uh, system that fails to recognize exactly how powerful the demand for the substance was uh, and so it just it could the the courts couldn't keep up the a carceral system couldn't keep up uh local um local uh, prohibition officials and offices couldn't keep up the police couldn't keep up and it comes a point where it's just observed in the breach everywhere anything you want to add Professor Davis? Well, any book has to uh, stop at a certain point. I mean, I guess maybe it doesn't. I really did stop my story um, around repeal. I think that there is a story to be told perhaps about uh, the post-repeal era. About uh, because I mean, the alcohol industry changes so much uh, as a you know result of um, regulations that go into effect when uh, when prohibition ends, and the American Jewish community changes a lot too, and shifts from being primarily um, you know an immigrant and uh, first generation community to uh, being you know very much you know native born for multiple generations, uh, upwardly mobile uh, in an era of um, higher education and much more professionalized than they had been previously. Uh, and so you know, how American Jews who do remain part of the alcohol industry, how that uh, changes their interaction with this, with this field, with this sector of the economy, I think does, there's a story to tell, but I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> I'll let somebody Great. tell that part of the story. Great, and since you spoke about post, uh you know, post-prohibition. What about, has there been much work done on 18th, 19th century 
uh, alcohol production in America by Jews? Has there been research scholarship on that? Uh, not a lot. Uh, okay. One, there's one uh, sector that I can think of. I mean, as far I mean, my book does talk about uh, 19th century, uh, and there Jonathan Sarna has written about uh, Jews and kosher wine production in the 19th century, and all, and not just kosher wine production, but also ideas about uh, where Jews fit into the story. I mean, for in a nation that is increasingly interested um, in the in sort of the a, a Christian narrative uh, as far as temperance is concerned. Did Jesus drink wine or did he drink grape juice? And, you know, this is one of the questions that, that very early temperance activists are asking, because if it turns out that he didn't drink wine or make wine, um, he made, or that he was only like dealing in grape juice, um, well, that's a good part of the, the, the temperance story. Uh, and so Jews yeah. kind of get drawn into like actual, the physical Jews who are living in the United States get drawn into that debate. As far as the 18th century is concerned, um, there is some uh, scholarship on the involvement of uh, Jews, um, particularly those in Rhode Island, who are participating in the triangular trade. So uh, the, the, the um, trade of, um, of basically the, the slave trade in the transatlantic world where um, Jews are their uh, one of their contributions to that trade is that they are importing sugar and molasses from the uh, West Indies, bringing it to uh, Rhode Island, where it's being distilled into rum. Oh, wow! And that wow. rum gets sold into the triangular trade too. Wow! Okay. So some of that scholarship. That's great. All right. So I have one final question for you, Professor Davis, which is, what's the reception been for your book? I imagine people are interested in this topic, right? Yeah, this title is. Uh, I, I'm. I'm delighted how at how. I mean, I think that the the general uh, response has been when people hear the title, they think it's funny, <laughs> uh, and that's great. Uh, 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 but when they actually read the book, I think that they recognize that it's it's you know there's a serious story about how is it that Jews as immigrants as one immigrant community. Um, and then as sort of an ethnic minority in the United States, how they have sort of presented themselves to their fellow Americans and how they have either held on to or transformed their uh, cultural, religious, ethnic practices so that they uh, both fit into the American, uh, you know, American social practices or um, how they can maintain their own sense of identity. Um, and that there's a larger story here than just one of you know, like Jews and booze. It's actually about, you know, how do how do immigrants make their way in their new world? Okay, great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Professor Davis. Thank and you. everybody out there, everybody out there, you can buy her book, Jews and Booze. The link's going to be down below. Thanks. Thank you so much. Okay. Absolutely. All right.